We're firmly in the green Sundays now, and so for the next several weeks, we're going to be reading from Genesis, for them from the Old Testament, and we're going to be reading from Paul's letter to the Romans, and of course, the gospel for year A is always Matthew. So I thought I'd preach on all three of the readings this morning. Uh, the first one is a really good story part of what N.T. Wright calls the sprawling narrative of the Bible. So I'm going to preach about that, and then I want to say something about what the reading from Romans might be about, and then uh, talk a little bit about Matthew. One of the most incomprehensible things when I was younger uh, was, uh, um, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and one's foes will be members of one's own household. So let's talk about Genesis first, because, you know. <laughs> Abraham had a son by a slave woman named Hagar, and the son's name was Ishmael. And Sarah, his wife, could not have children for a long time. And in the story, it says that uh, Sarah finally became pregnant uh, when she was of an advanced age. And she gave birth to Isaac. I've told you I love the story when the three angels come to the oak at Mamre and Abraham is there and Sarah's there. <laughs> And they tell her that she's going to have a baby. And Sarah laughs. And one of the angels looks at her and said, why are you laughing? So she gets pregnant and she has a baby. And the baby's name is Isaac. God laughed or laughed. It could be just laughed. So in this story, Isaac is about three, and Ishmael is 17. And it says in the story that, it, that Sarah saw Ishmael playing with Isaac, and Sarah, as the result of that, goes and tells Abraham, he's going to have no part of your inheritance, and I, I won't have it. Now, in the original language, Isaac is laughed, or he laughed, and the word used for play in Hebrew comes from the same root, and it is sometimes, it is sometimes translated as derisive laughter, which is, makes it entirely possible that uh, Ishmael wasn't just playing with Isaac, he was chiding him and maybe said to him that he is, he is going to usurp his inheritance. And Sarah hears this. So I'm, what I'm saying to you, it, couldn't be, it may not be just jealousy on Sarah's part. So she tells Abraham that you've got to send him away. I'm thinking to myself, this is an ancient Near East version of the conflicts of the blended family. <laughs> so what goes around comes around. 
And so Abraham is in the middle, like is often the case. And uh, God tells him that uh, he's got to send Ishmael and Hagar away. And uh, he's not to worry because he will look after them. So Abraham gives Hagar a big skin of water and sends Ishmael off with her and they go marching in the desert. And they keep going and they finally run out of water and there isn't probably not much food. And Ishmael is now looking probably if we had a photograph like all of those pleas for world hunger around the world, right? So what she's done is park him on the road in the sort of in the bushes, which was not an uncommon practice in the ancient Near East because the hope was that some merchants would be passing by and they might pick him up. He might very well become a slave, but at least he wouldn't be dead. He'd get fed and he'd be, he'd be okay. So she's there within bowshot, and that doesn't have anything, well, it might have something to do with Ishmael's vocation later, but it means within sight, so she can see him. And all of a sudden, God speaks to her and says that he's going to look after both of them and that uh, he will become a great nation. So she turns and sees a well. And she gets water, and Ishmael's okay, and they move forward. And it says they found, find Ishmael an Egyptian wife. She becomes the head of the household now, so she finds him ultimately an Egyptian wife. And he has 12 sons. And each one of them become the head of one of the tribes between Assyria and Egypt. Okay, that's the grand narrative about what it is that went on. And in this story, uh, I, I just want to pose some questions because I don't have all the answers. My view when I read this is that God is faithful. And one of the big questions you ask, do God's promises to Abraham and Sarah, uh, that others, uh, those promises preclude helping anybody else? or the necessity of casting other people aside. So that means, does God, is God's blessing a zero-sum game? Are some blessed and therefore some must not be? Or does God's blessing extend to everyone? And how do we understand what that means in every age? If a person receives the blessing of God, does this mean that they can claim special status for themselves? What rights and responsibilities accompany the blessings of God? Now, Paul is going to get into this a little bit in Romans, but what it means is, is that for, for a long time in uh, human life, people have thought uh, they were part of a chosen group and blessed by God, and that vested them with special privileges. And what's often left out is that the special privileges uh, include some special responsibilities. So it isn't just a situation where people now believe they're chosen and others aren't. And how do we understand what that means? So in a vocational sense as a people, 
the struggle has always been uh, the people of Israel uh, understood themselves to be called by God, called out by God, a special group in a special arrangement with God, and that did vest them with special privileges. But others continued to point out, including the prophets of Israel, that it also vested them with certain responsibilities. And this is a story about the fact that God's blessing extends to not just the special people, but to everybody. You know, the prophet Isaiah was concerned always to say that uh, God's welcome is for everybody and God's saving embrace is open to everybody and that that is what the future is for Israel. And this finds its focus for Christian people in the person of Jesus, that he becomes now the focal point for understanding God's gracious welcome to everybody. So the reading from, from uh, Genesis today is about that. Next week, we're going to talk about Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac and ask the question, what does God demand? And how do we understand why in the world a story like that uh, would be uh, in the Bible, you know? That's um, in, in, uh, in philosophy, particularly in Christian uh, philosophy, these days, there's something that, that's talked about called a defeater. So in other words, if you believe this and you have information now about this and something else that appears to contradict it, does it defeat the belief that it's true? Does it constitute a defeater? And so there's a lot of conversation about, uh, about all of this. Uh, and we'll talk about that over the next time in the Green Sundays. Paul today in Romans is talking about, uh, and this is something that is important to me. A lot of people uh, have various views on this, but Paul today is talking about something that is central to his own theology, and that's called participation in Christ. The centerpiece of Paul's theology for Reformed theologians, Reformed theology, of, and Anglicanism has uh, part of that in their own tradition as well, is that it's justification by faith through grace. That that's the centerpiece of Paul's theology. Luther would have said uh, the whole of Christianity rises or falls on that principle of justification by faith. But there are many people now who've written a lot about Paul and believe that uh, while not diminishing justification by faith, the idea of participation in Christ is important. So he talks today about, you know, that you were baptized not uh, into the resurrection only of Jesus, but you were baptized into Jesus's death. You, were, you have now participated in the full uh, range of the work of Christ. And as a member of the church, that's who you are now. And so in one sense, participation becomes kind of a template like uh, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith in the, in the epistle to the Hebrews. So when we think about that, Paul is talking about what your responsibilities might be in that context and how we struggle with what that might mean. 
It also means that because you now are in Christ, you have not just, you just can't do anything you want to do. There's some things that, you know. I read something this week that doesn't quite relate to this, but I thought it was funny. Somebody on the, uh, said, um, there is no such thing as absolute truth. And the other person said, are you absolutely sure? <laughs> you know, that's the world we live in. And people who talk that way, of course, uh, believe that they must be at some Archimedean point, I guess, because they can see the whole truth, right? And they can't. Leslie Newbegin tells a story about, a famous Indian story about the, uh, the blind man and the elephant. You know, one says, well, the elephant's big and thick. You know, the elephant's got a skinny tail, uh, all of these things, but none of them can describe the whole elephant. You have to see the whole elephant to be able to describe it, right? And that's the point. And that's uh, one of the shibboleths of contemporary life, I think. So Paul is talking about uh, living into our true humanity and participating in Christ. And we'll hear more about that. We're going to slog through Romans. I always hesitate about preaching about Romans because it sounds like you start listening to that at the liturgy being read and you think, I'm getting only 5% of this. I can't understand what in the world he's getting at. But actually, you can if you try. So in the gospel... Jesus is speaking about, here's, the, here's the, what's happening. Jesus is called the 12 apostles. And we have readings before this Sunday, but we pick up on in what was called proper seven because of the dating of Easter. So sometimes we miss uh, a few weeks from the beginning of the readings, the whole of the readings. So we're in proper seven. And last, time, last week, we were, he was calling the apostles and he was uh, encouraging them and warning them. So it affords an opportunity to see he may be talking here about being people being persecuted and all of that. So it's important to know something. In the first century uh, AD, uh, the Romans didn't persecute the Christians very much. There were periodic persecutions in some places. The real throw them to lions and have them attacked by wild beasts started in the middle second century, like 150. But in the period in which uh, the Gospels were written, uh, people were not being persecuted to that extent. So I think this is referring to a couple of things. One is the internal conflicts that occurred within, in this case, Matthew's church, which was a Christian synagogue that had now become 70% Gentile. And as the result of that, the Jews, of which Matthew was one, he was a former rabbi, were trying to figure out what were they going to do in a, in a synagogue that was 70% Gentile. And how now do we have some kind of modus vivendi uh, to move forward as Christian people? And so the being reviled and all of the persecuted could come from the Gentiles or it could also come from the Jews toward the Gentiles. And how do we think about what Christianity is all about in that context? And it also could have something to do with how the Romans uh, were persecuting the Jews and so forth. 
But there's a lot of conversation here about internecine stuff. And all this warning about family and everything has something to do, I think, with that kind of thing, not necessarily the Roman government. You may ask the question, how come the Christians were persecuted? Because the Romans were pretty tolerant of religions. And in fact, the, the Jews were very stubborn about cooperating with the Romans and said they weren't going to do, they weren't going to, you know, uh, make sacrifices to the emperor and so forth. And they said, okay, we'll just leave that alone because they're an ancient religion. But the Christians were not an ancient religion. And they, they began to think that the Christians were just plain belligerent because in some ways they were antisocial. They would, have no, they would not participate in uh, ritual meals of the Roman Empire and all this stuff. They didn't do that. They didn't sort of cooperate with people. And it began to be very difficult. And within the context of the Roman Empire, for someone to call himself the Messiah or to be thought of as the Messiah was very, very dangerous in terms of the political situation in the ancient Near East. That was not uh, just, oh, well, some fanatic who's doing this. There, there, it would cause real problems. So that gives rise to the possibility of persecution. But today the readings have to do, as I say, with this kind of familial and internecine conflict. It also has to do with the fact, I've mentioned this a few times recently, a lot of the, most of the New Testament and certainly the Gospels were written to uh, audiences that were primarily illiterate. They could not read. And so the quality of an uh, illiterate person's memory is much higher than our own. So their ability to memorize things is very great. And parts of the gospel are written in such a way as to provide little aphorisms or little poems or little hymns that a person evangelizing could use to speak to somebody about what Jesus taught or about what they believed as Christian people. In the, in the uh, reading from Matthew today, uh, it's placed one of them like a poem or like a hymn. And that's the one that says, For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and one's foes will be members of one's own household. And just before that, in a one-liner, he said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not. I've come to bring peace, uh, not peace, but a sword. And before that, there, everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven, but whoever denies me before others, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. So, you know, instead of handing somebody a pamphlet in the ancient Near East, you've got somebody here who's memorized all these things and he just uh, regurgitates them when, when it's necessary. When I was a kid and first read this, or was read to me, this section, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her. I thought this was absolutely incomprehensible. I mean, is Jesus somebody who's here to sow family discord and difficulty? And why should we hate our parents or why should they hate us? And what's operating here? Then I decided I wanted to go to seminary and become an Episcopal priest and my family went over the moon. 
and I knew exactly what this passage meant. <laughs> First hand. Okay? So, the, Jesus is capable uh, in many places of speaking in a hyperbolic fashion. And this may be uh, part of that, part of that uh, hyperbolic speaking about things. But it is true that uh, strong convictions can produce tension and difficulty. And Jesus is speaking here about the importance of having the courage of your convictions. You know, people in the helping professions, uh, Ernest and I have been pastors for a long time. We've all talked to people who uh, either kicked over the traces and left and suffered the consequences or not or didn't kick over the traces and stayed, and their life was a misery. So trying to sort out what, what it is that uh, is the right task is difficult, but the thing is that you have to have the courage of your convictions. What does the denial of Jesus look like? How many times can we be forgiven? What does it look like to acknowledge Jesus before others? How can we support each other as members of the household of God? This has become very difficult in our age and has for probably 200 years, you know, because most people in this country have been inoculated against Christianity. They already know about it. They've been exposed to it. So what that means is, is that this is a mission field to some degree. And it's very difficult to know how to do that in this, in this situation. It isn't like going from cold somewhere and speaking to people about who Jesus was and why it might be important to believe in him and what, uh, how, how your life is in some way going to be improved or you will feel closer to God than you did before because we've all been inoculated against it in some ways. It's in too deep. So what we have to do is to figure out what that means now. And I expect the readings in the next several weeks are going to have some uh, information about what that might mean. Uh, what can we do now? You know? Uh, I am not at all sympathetic to this, I have to say. But in American Christianity, the style of evangelism for so long was somebody like Bill Bright or Billy Graham. Billy Graham, to me, is the real deal. But doing what he does is over. It's over. And there's got to be another way to do this. And people are beginning to think thoughts about that. So how do you commend to others a religious tradition within Christianity, Anglicanism, which says you shouldn't park your brains at the front door to come in and listen and, be, and participate? How do you honor the full force and effect of your intellectual powers brought to bear on the deep things of Christian faith and belief? And how do you commend that to other people as a means by which you come closer to uh, God's purposes for you? And I don't think you can do it all at once. People used to believe that you could. You'd had a sort of four-part thing, and they all went, boom, and there, I'll sign, and we're in. It's not true anymore. And Jesus, in one sense, is encouraging them about having the courage of their convictions. 
We've learned from Genesis that God is faithful and that God's care extends to everyone. We've learned that Paul, through Paul that we are participators in Christ and Christ's instruments in the world now. And in Matthew, we have learned that we are uh, the recipients of uh, the courage to do God's work in the world. So stay tuned. Amen. Amen.